The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right, we got work to do. That's enough of that. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 30? 1 Samuel 30 uh, is where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, you can open your, your Bible. You can open a phone or a tablet. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can borrow one of those and uh, open that up to one, uh, 1 Samuel 30. That's on page 251. If you notice in your Bible, uh, that chapter 30 is followed by chapter 31, which is followed by the end. We're almost there, you guys. We're almost to the end of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 30 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. As you are uh, turning there, let me start with this question. What would you do if you found yourself in a desperately grave situation? Like a terrible situation. Like maybe the worst situation that you could even imagine or, or get your mind around is happening to you? What would you do? And sometimes uh, if, if you're thinking of maybe the worst thing that you've been through or, or, or somebody that you know has been through, sometimes the most terrible situations are actually not when something happens to you directly, but when, when it happens to somebody that you love, right? So, so think about it. In a moment, when something happens to you or to someone that you love so deeply that's horrific, the question I want to ask is, what would you do? What would you do? What would you do if your mom or your dad got diagnosed with something scary? What, what would you do if something was going on with your child? What would you do if, if your spouse found themselves in a place of extreme suffering? What would you do and I think all of us, the answer is, man, we do whatever it takes. What would you do? I'd do whatever it takes. One of the things that's marked uh, my marriage uh, personally has been uh, my wife Marcy's health. And I've told you guys about this, but uh, about a year into our marriage, we're 16 years married now, but a year into our marriage, Marcy started losing weight. And it was a strange thing, and, 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 and it wasn't just a little bit of weight. It was, like, significant amount of weight. And if you know her, you've seen her, she can't lose that much weight. Like, if you lose too much weight at some point with her frame, you're not good. Like, it's not good weight loss, okay? But she had lost, like, 20 pounds, and not on purpose. And, and, and it was getting unhealthy. And we started noticing that, like, the color of her skin and her face was, like, gray, she was not doing well. Her face looked gray. She was tired and lethargic. And so we started going to doctors, like anybody would do. We just started going to doctors, different doctors. We went to generalists, and then we moved to specialists. We went to neurologists and gastroenterologists, all kinds of ologists. I mean, lots of different uh, specialties. And nobody could seem to figure out what was going on. Like for years we were doing this. Nobody seemed to figure this thing out, and she kept getting worse. You ever, you ever been to a place like that? that place. And at this point for, for us, Marcy had to quit her job. She could not uh, keep working as a teacher. She was just barely existing, uh, spending five days a week just on the couch, essentially bedridden, wasting away. What would you do? What would you do? We got to the point where we, we answered genuinely, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. So a friend told us about a naturopathic doctor. 
okay, uh, who had really helped this gal with some unknown health issues. And we literally were like, what do we have to lose at this point? What do we have to lose? Uh, so we set an appointment. And I just want you to know right off the bat, I'm not a big believer in it. Okay, you might be, and that's fine, but like I'm not a big believer in like Eastern medicine and alternative medicine and acupuncture and like essential oils. Like I'm just not into it, okay? And, and listen, if you're an essential oil person, don't email me, okay? Don't get upset with me, okay? We've got some of those things at the house. They smell great, all right? Uh, smells nice. Uh, it's not supported by anyone in the medical community, okay? And it's a pyramid scheme, I think. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so they, uh, just buy, give me a few hundred dollars, a couple of vials. I'll get some for my dog, too. Yeah, I get it, okay? I just, I'm just not going to bite on it, okay? I'm just not going to bite on it. But we were at the point where it's like, hey, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, so we'll give it a shot. So uh, we get an appointment with this naturopath, okay? Her name was Anya, which is like Enya, but Anya made sense, made complete sense. She worked out of her house, which, again, made complete sense, Okay? Uh, we, we go to this gal, and she lays Marcy down on what I think is a massage table, okay? Uh, and then she puts a drop of oil right on her head, right there on her head, to open up her senses or her third eye, all right? Uh, and, and I'm already, like, out on this quack at that moment. I'm like, no, nah, this is not happening. But, but she, there's, like, candles burning in the room, and there's, like, some soft, like, whale sounds playing in the background. And then on the shelf of this room, there are all these gemstones and crystals, okay? And immediately my mind goes to Napoleon Dynamite, right? Like, don't forget the crystals, right? Like, that's, that's where my brain went at that point. But Anya takes one, one crystal and she slides it under the cushion that Marcy's head is on, one crystal. She takes another crystal, which she claimed is connected to that crystal, and was like moving it around on like vials that I guess contained different viruses and parasites. And she says to Marcy, you're, you're full of parasites. And I'm thinking, you're full of something, right? Like, <laughs> but listen, what would you do? What would you do? Man, you do whatever it takes. Today, David finds himself in a terrible situation. As we get to the close of 1 Samuel, uh, David is in an awful situation today. Last we left him, if you remember, uh, he was living with the Philistines. Okay, he ran to live with the Philistines in hiding from King Saul, who has tried on countless occasions to murder him. So it's already pretty bad when you're living with the arch nemesis of Israel in Philistia, but now the Philistines are actually going to war. We talked about this last week. They're going to war against the Israelites, against King Saul, and they have left David and his crew behind because they're afraid he might turn on them, which is a good fear. It's probably true. In fear that he might turn on the Philistines, they leave him at home, uh, and, and so he stays back in Philistia. They go and march on Israel, and that's where we pick ourselves up in, in, in chapter 30, starting in verse 1. So follow, follow along with me here. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag, Ziklag is the city in Philistia where uh, they have been residing for 16 months at this point, Ziklag. When they come to Ziklag, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. 
So, this is an unbelievably awful situation for David and his men. This is an unbelievably terrible situation. While he and his 600 uh, fighters were away, uh, the Amalekites raided their home at Ziklag. And now as they march home, you can picture them marching home and seeing billows of smoke come up from their encampment. And they come into their camp and they find it in ashes with all of their women and children taken, gone. Now they know they're taken because there's no bodies strewn about. There's no dead. So that means they were taken most likely for the slave trade. Slave trade was a very prominent business at this time. I think Joseph and his brothers, you know, the trade of slaves specifically through Egypt. So this is an issue of human trafficking at this moment. His the, the, the wives, the children, great and small, are taken. And we are told in the text that it's the Amalekites who do this. The Amalekites. You might remember Amalek, the Amalekites, uh, because uh, David and his guys, don't. while they don't know who made this raid, we know it's the Amalekites. Do you remember where we know the Amalekites from? Who was supposed to have killed all of the Amalekites? Saul. Actually, the... That's what we read about last week, the reason why he called that medium up from the grave, or had the medium call Samuel up from the grave. It was because the sin of Amalek is why God had rejected him. And so this is really Saul's, uh, Saul's uh, fault, ultimately, that the Amalekites are still running around. Um, but, but David and his guys don't know this. They don't know that it's the Amalekites because they're not like, you, you raid a city, you're not like leaving a calling card. You're, right? You're not like leaving the, the sink on like the wet bandits at home alone. That's not what's going on here, okay? They just know our people are gone. Our wives, our children, they have been taken. And, and, and yeah, it was supposed to be Saul who had put them all to death, but now they've taken our kids. What would you do? That's the situation here. What would you do if you showed up home after work and your family's been taken? Well, let's see what David does. Look at verse three. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and all their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Verse four, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Okay. The first thing that David and his men do when they walk into their city is they weep. They wept. I don't know if you have been in desperate situations, but when I've been in desperate situations like this, I want to do something. When I walk into a hard situation, I want to do, let's do something about it. Get the oils, get the crystals, all right? Whatever it takes. I want to do something. And sometimes there are things that can be done. And sometimes there's not. Let's not miss the fact that David and his fighting men, 600 warriors, wept until they had nothing left to give. You ever been to that spot where you've cried enough tears to the point where you just are dry? These were hardened warriors, and they're at the place where they weep until they can't weep anymore. It just is that, that, this is there to just reinforce how distraught and horrible this, this, this position that they are in is. They wept until they couldn't weep anymore. Verse 5. 
And David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam and Jezreel, of, of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Yes, David had multiple wives. We don't have time to get into it, okay? If your wives get taken, you have a number of problems, okay? <laughs> Verse six. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Okay, so let's pause right there. In, their, in this great distress, the 600 come back to the camp. There's no kids. In this moment of great distress, man, a temptation, an immediate temptation is that we can try and find somebody to blame. An immediate temptation in a moment of pain, of suffering, of, of, of just a horrible situation is we can immediately try to start pointing fingers. Here, here's, here, just watch every time there's a school shooting. And we can all agree that is horrible. It's a horrific event. But just watch the news. I don't care which side of the news you want. De- depending on which news you'll watch, you'll, you'll, you'll quickly find out that they are trying to start pointing the finger and finding who's to blame. It's the mental health system. That's what some will say. No, 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 it's, it's racism. No, it's, it's loose gun laws. No, it's, it's violent video games. No, it's, it's, it's absence of good parenting. No, it's a, it's a culture of bullying. And on and on we could go. Everybody's looking for someone to blame. And hear me, that's because in an awful situation... In an awful situation, the questions that come right to the surface are, why is this happening? In every terrible situation, we start to ask, why is this happening? And immediately we start trying to find somebody to blame. I think it's a natural thing. In fact, sometimes we start looking and pointing the finger at ourselves. Like, am I to blame? Why is God doing this to me? Is it because I had that abortion? Is it because I cheated on her? Is it because I've lied and stole? Is it because I abused or have been hiding this sin? Is it because I'm just a bad person? God, are you punishing me for something? Sometimes it's not just we point fingers at others. We start to point fingers at ourselves. So we've already established that ultimately this is Saul's bad here. The Amalekites, it's Saul's fault. Is it his fault though? Is that who's to blame? Is it, is it uh, the warrior's fault? I mean, they're the ones who left their, their village unprotected. They didn't have enough security or something. Is it their own fault? Well, see, in this case, David's men point the finger at David. They point the finger at their leader. And just think with me, if you've been with us, think with me of the narrative that's going on in their minds. David, we've been following you. You're our leader. We never would have been here if it hadn't been for you. You're the one with the beef with Saul. You could have killed him two times. It was offered to you. And now we are exiles in Philistia. You've put us all at risk. And look what's happened. If it weren't for you, our wives would still be with us. Our daughters would still be with us. Our sons would still be with us. This is on you, man. Oh, how that temptation is real. But look what David does. Look at verse six again. David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. 
the end of the verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That sentence, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That sentence is of the utmost importance for this chapter. That's the sentence that we're going to pick apart. That's the sentence where we're going to hang our hats. And that's a sentence that we will find, I think, instruction for how we can handle those moments of distress and pain and suffering. Okay, that one little phrase, David, he does not point a finger at someone to blame. They're all blaming him. He's not like, hey, Saul. He's not like, hey, all of us, let's own our part. David does none of that. He's under severe pressure. He is in his own state of shock over the loss of his family. His wives were taken. He's not just uh, out there. He has loss as well. And now he has 600 wanting to kill him for their loss. This might be David's lowest moment up to this point in his life. This might be the pit of David's life up to this point. But the turning point for him is actually in this pit because at that moment, he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. So what would you do? I think we should do what David does and we should strengthen ourselves. Strengthen ourselves. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to strengthen yourself? Well, let me give us three things, okay? First, let me tell you what it's not, and then we'll do three things about what it is. First, strengthening ourselves is not, it's not like a self-help religious jargon sort of thing. Just strengthen yourself. It's not like, it's not like a a religious self-help kind of motivation. Just like buck up. That's not what this is. That's actually what Saul tried, uh, how he tried to use God last week in the text. Remember, remember uh, when he inquired of the Lord? He's trying to use God last week, but our God is not just a, you know, make you feel better, get you out of a jam type of God. That's not what he is. Jesus is not your own personal pain reliever to get you on top of life's aches and pains. Though some will want to use him that way. Some will want to just strengthen yourself. Just feel better. Just think better. This is not, strengthening yourself is not some sort of like religious magic antidote to life's problems. It's not that. Strengthening ourselves is also not simply venting and being upset. That is like letting go emotionally, just letting it all out. David and the guys actually already did that back in verse four. They wept, they cried, they mourned. And there's a difference between pouring out your sorrow, which is good and right. There's a difference though between that and strengthening yourself. You can be distraught over the hard stuff that's in your life and never be strengthened by the Lord. That's what we saw last week with Saul again. Saul was distraught. He was trembling. He wouldn't even eat. He was so afraid that by night he went to the medium to call up the dead. He was that distraught, and yet he never strengthened himself in the Lord. You can be broken by the hardship in your life and never strengthen yourself. 
So then what does it mean? What is strengthening ourselves in the Lord? Three things. Just from this. First, it's personal. Look again at the end of verse six. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Every time Saul mentions the Lord in that sort of phrase, he calls him, and this is to uh, Samuel, the prophet, he says, the Lord, your God. But David calls Yahweh, Yahweh, my God. He's his God. I don't think we can overstate how important that it is that David had a vital personal faith in his personal God. It's not generic. This isn't the God of Israel at this point. This isn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point. No, no, no. This is Yahweh, my God. He strengthens himself there. And listen, this is for for pseudo-religious evangelical Christians. Here's a temptation. The temptation is to think of God in the abstract. To think of God as the big man upstairs. To think of God as the higher power. To think of God as maybe this distant grandfatherly type that's just looking down off the clouds, you know, turning up his magic ears to hear your prayers, that kind of God. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that David is praying to. It was the Lord, his God. That's why David doesn't say, the Lord is our shepherd. No, no, no. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that translates into the New Testament. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says these famous words, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice the pronouns here, okay? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not saying this is all about you, but it's kind of, it's personal. David strengthens himself in his personal God. You'll never strengthen yourself in in the Lord, in Yahweh, until he is your God. So I don't want to overstep my bounds before we get into some more practical things. Do you know him? Do you know that you know him? Is he Yahweh, your God? But then once David strengthens himself in his personal God, the question is, okay, so, so how? Again, how do we do this? If, if we have a relationship with this God, how do we strengthen ourselves? Well, you have to do a little bit of work on this. The word that the, in the Hebrew for strengthened is used twice in this book. Okay, strengthened is used twice. The first was in chapter 23. And in chapter 23, I'll remind you, right in the thick of Saul chasing after David, trying to kill him, uh, David meets up with his best friend, Jonathan. They meet up, they hang out, and, and the text says that in this moment, Jonathan, David is on the run at this point. He's on the run for his life. Jonathan shows up, and it, the text says that Jonathan strengthened David. Jonathan strengthened David, just as David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
And, and Jonathan strengthens David by reminding David of the promises that God had for him. He reminds him of who he is and what God has for him. And it's the second part of strengthening ourselves. We got to remember God's promises. First, he's got to be your personal God. He's got to be the Lord, your God. But then we strengthen ourselves, not by just like wishful thinking. Oh man, just, you know, set my mind right. Just build myself up. No, 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 no. We remember God's promises. David must have recalled God's promises to him. Here's some of God's promises to David. You're going to be the king. You will be king. They're not going to kill you. You're going to be king. You're going to reign over Israel. You're going to be a man after my own heart. These are the promises that David must have recalled how God had faithfully kept his word so far. Everything that God had gotten him out of, the jams, the providential moments where God just seems behind his back to make things happen to save David and his people. God was faithful then and faithful now. And we see this throughout the Psalms of David, okay? If you read the Psalms, Here's a favorite of many, Psalm 42. This is a psalm uh, that we like, as the deer pants for flowing streams. You remember this song? We used to sing it. As the deer panteth, right? Remember that? That's, that's where this came from, okay? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. These are David's words. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So Psalm 42 is an account of David in the midst of an immense suffering moment. My tears have been my food. It sounds a lot like what he and his men did when they walked back into Ziklag. My tears have been my food. They're saying, where is your God? But then look at what happens in verse five. This is what David says. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. See, when David gets into a dis distressing moment, when, when the wheels fall off, when the bottom falls out, he had, first he says, my tears have been my food. I'm acknowledging that I'm in deep pain. I'm in deep distress. But then right on the heels of that, he starts, it's like he looks at himself. It's like he, he turns his eyes from his circumstances to himself and he says, why are you downcast? It's like he preaches to himself. He starts talking to himself. You've heard self-talk? That's kind of like a... David started that, okay? <laughs> David was way ahead of his times. He starts self-talking, and he reminds himself, the Lord is my salvation. Why are you downcast? He preaches to his soul, and I think he does that here as well. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God, by remembering God's promises. But then there's one more thing that he does, okay? And actually to see this, we have to look at verse seven. So back to our text. We've only made it one paragraph in this chapter. Don't worry about it. Okay, verse seven. 
And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar, Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. The third thing that David does as he strengthens himself is he takes advantage of his access to God's presence. He takes advantage of his access to God's presence. And he does so through Abiathar. You remember who Abiathar was? Abiathar was the one remaining priest from the priestly family at the city of Nob. Nob was the city where Saul went and ravaged 85 of the priests of Yahweh. One escaped, Abiathar, he brought with him an ephod, and he ran to David and started following him. And do you remember what the ephod contained? We've talked about this. That allowed David to get into God's presence. Right? The, the stones, the Urim or the, and the Thummim, or the Uma Thurman, as one reminded me last week, how he keeps that straight. Hey, whatever, you know, whatever helps you on that. But, but this, once again, is a stark contrast to Saul. Last week, Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. He had cut himself off from the presence of God. But now, David inquires of the Lord, does the same thing, but he gets an answer because he had access to God's presence. And listen, while we, we don't have priests, we don't have ephods, I don't have like, you know, magic dice that I can throw to tell you what you should do in life. None of that happens for us. But I've said this on repeat, in Hebrews 4, we, we find a passage that says we do have a great high priest. And therefore, this is what the text says, because Jesus is your great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So hear me, we strengthen ourselves in our personal God by reminding ourselves of the promises of God and by getting ourselves into the presence of God. That's how we do it. That's what David did. His God, his God's promises and his God's presence are what lead to the conclusion of this story. So let's see what happens down in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country. And they brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate. Then they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had just made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. That's David's home. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? 
And the servant said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. So remember, they didn't know who raided them. How were they expected to go and find their wives and their children without even knowing who it was who stole them, who took them, but they just happen upon an Egyptian in a field. An Egyptian slave in a field who's starving to death because he was left behind by these Amalekites who obviously valued human life so much, right? And he says he's a slave of the Amalekites who burnt Ziklag. And David interrogates him and promises him amnesty if this guy leads him to the raiding party. And listen, we're just meant to note the, the, the black and white evidence of God's providence here. Needle in a haystack is Egyptian slave in a field in the wilderness of Philistia. We're supposed to note that without God's hand leading them to a random slave in a field, they never would have recovered their families. Never. Now look at verse 16. When the slave had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who had mounted camels and fled. Why you put that in there? No idea. It makes me trust the Bible, right? <laughs> little comment about camels being quick. Good to know, okay? Verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and he said, and said, this is David's spoil. So listen, the Amalekites aren't that hard to surprise because they're eating and drinking and dancing. They're, they're, they're enjoying the spoils of their war. And the, the text says that for a day and a half, David and his men ravaged them. They pull out their sword and not a man escapes except for those camel guys. I guess you want to be a camel rider in the plundering, I guess. But, but for a day and a half, David recovers not only his wives, but, but everything. It says nothing was missing, whether great or small. Plus, there's all this extra plunder, all this additional stuff. Now, we don't have time to go into all of it, but some of David's men on their way back want to actually take credit for themselves for the victory, and they don't want to share out the spoils with some of the men that were left back in the camp because they were too exhausted to march forward, which is also a good idea. Like, leave some of your guys back for security. Learn from Ziklag. So they left 200 of their 600. So it's only 400 who go out against uh, the, the Amalekites. They kill them all, and as they're marching back, some rascals in his bunch say, we shouldn't give them anything. Those 200 who stay back, we shouldn't give them any of the spoils. But look what David does in verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what, oops, double flip here. 
with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. That's, that's David's quality and character coming to the surface. Tell me this guy's not ready to be king now? He could have kept it all. This is David's spoils. This is David's plunder. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't, don't be like that, guys. This is the Lord's. Let's not forget that Yahweh gave us victory. Let's not forget that random Egyptian slave. Let's not forget that it's he who preserved us and he who gave the band into our hand. All our hope was gone. Don't forget the tears that we were crying. Don't forget that. Don't forget that you were pointing the finger at me. Don't forget that. Now, why do I spend all the time today on, on that one verse, verse six? Why do I spend all the time on David strengthening himself in the Lord, his God. I want to spend all of our time really focusing on that because I think it speaks directly into a myth that a lot of modern Christians have bought into. And the myth is this. It's been popularized in much of evangelicalism and it's being fed to you in some ways. But the myth is this, that Jesus is all about your health and your wealth and your happiness. That he's just, that's what he's about. That that's what he, that he wants you to be happy. That he wants your life to go smoothly. That once you follow, start following Jesus, it's just rainbows and skittles and skipping through life. The problem with that narrative is, has that ever worked for anybody? Does anybody have that testimony? And the problem with that message is that even if you've had a decent life, it will not be enough to sustain your faith when sufferings that Jesus promised will come to you, come to you. It won't be enough. Listen, when Marcy got sick, things didn't get better. The crystals didn't do their work. The oils, I mean, I don't know what a third eye is, but it did, didn't do anything. It smelled nice, but that was the extent of it. And hear me, once all the easy things were ruled out, that's when they start talking about the scary stuff at doctors. That's when they start talking about tumors and autoimmune disorders and, and cancer. Lifelong sufferings, shortening her lifespan conversations. And I can vividly remember, we were 24 years old. 24 years old, sitting in the waiting room of a hospital while she's having a brain MRI looking for brain tumors. And I can remember praying, God, this isn't what's supposed to happen in our 20s. This isn't what's supposed to happen. I know we said in sickness and in health, but that, I meant that later. I didn't mean that in my 20s. This wasn't, wasn't supposed to happen until much later in life. And then my mom got terminal cancer diagnosed. And then Marcy miscarried with our first child. And then I planted this church, one of the great joys of my ministry career, only to find out that people are really mean. 
and it's been a delight and it's been a disaster. Because I've had people who have, I feel like I've been deeply committed to who just turn and walk away and even curse me or, or hate me. And now I'm the one who, who meets people at Children's Hospital in the NICU. And now I'm the one who they call, they call me, their pastor, to, to come and to pray over little ones who have little to no medical hope. And I, I can't unremember those moments in, in the hospital praying, begging God for these little ones. I pray that God will heal them, trusting that he can and wondering why more often than not, he doesn't. What would you do? What would you do? Let me close with this. Are you in a tough situation? Maybe not in this very moment, maybe it is right now. Desperation is set in. You're not sure what your next move is. It might feel like the biggest thing ever, and it might feel like just a small thing that's, that's needling at you, but, but what is it? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Listen, can I just commend to you from both my experience and from what I just read in the text that we should probably try to do what David did. That you should do what David did and you should strengthen yourself. You should strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. So here's the first question for you. Is he your personal God? I mean, this one you have to be sure of. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because if not, then all the rest is totally a moot point. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's step one. It's the most impactful and important part of this whole thing. He's got to be the Lord, your God. Not just the Lord, our God. Not just the Lord, the God. The Lord, your God. And if you want to do that today, then listen, come, come talk to me after service. Come talk to me in the back of the room. I, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to help you pray to receive Christ. Come on, let's do this. What are you waiting for? You think the storms are going to get easier? I've got news for you. Life doesn't get easier. Life is just life, and suffering is a part of life, and you need someone who you can trust in. You need a personal God. But then hear me, if he is your God, if he is Yahweh, your God, then today I want to encourage you to remember and remind yourself of God's promises. I want you to just kind of look at your soul and remind yourself of these things. Here's some promises, just a few. He'll never leave or forsake you. He will bring the work that he started in you to completion, no matter how far you've strayed. He has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, our three great enemies. He will give you rest for your soul if you come to him. His power is made perfect in your weakness. And he works 
all things together for the good of those who he loves and has called according to his purposes. Just a few. Soul, you, you, why are you downcast? Trust in the Lord. Preach to yourself. And then finally, you got to draw near to his presence. That's Hebrews chapter four. You draw, how do you draw? You draw near in prayer and in worship. That's what we're, it's what we're doing this morning together. So you're already doing it, okay? You're drawing near. That's what we're all about here. That's what we've done. What's what we're going to do, okay? Listen, church isn't just like a TED Talk with some Christian karaoke. That's not what this is. It's not just you listening to me yap at you for 45 minutes and then you sing a couple of songs and then you're out hitting chilies before the Baptists, all right? That's not the goal here. You following me here? That's not the goal. The goal is you drawing near to the presence of the Lord your God. You got a good father. He bids you to come to draw near to him and to find grace that will actually help in your time of need. So if you're there today, if you're in a place of desperation, let me just encourage you with one last thought. God finds desperate hearts irresistible. God finds desperate hearts irresistible. It's where he does his best work. It's where he shines better than anywhere else in this world. And all of our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is actually with us and, and on our side when things are going well. How are you doing with Jesus? I'm doing great. Oh, great. And we think that's where he's doing his best work. But this text presents the opposite. Jesus finds desperate hearts irresistible. So let's close with Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18, which say this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He finds desperate hearts irresistible. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are men and women in this room. There are students in this room. There are those who are joining us online who I know are in grave situations. Some feel like they're in the pit like David. Some feel like they don't know what to do next, that their life is closed in, that the bottom has fallen out and they're not sure where to turn. But Lord, I pray we would take heart from, from the man after your own heart, that we would heed just this one little phrase, that David strengthened his heart and the Lord his God. And that we would take that as our marching orders in our distress, in our sufferings, in our trials. Lord, there are some today who need to enter into your presence, 
They're just kind of moving their lips. They're just kind of going through the motions. And today they need to draw near to you because you are their great high priest and you uh, sympathize with them. There are others who need to remind themselves of your good promises. No, it may not change their circumstance as they leave this room, but it might change their countenance as they preach to their soul. And maybe most importantly, Lord, there might be some in here who do not have a personal relationship with you. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you are knocking on doors, ripping those open, and that they would have courage to walk through in faith, believing that this is not just the big man upstairs, but that this is Yahweh, their God. All they have to pray is, Jesus, I I want you in my life. I submit to you. I confess I'm a sinner and I need you as Savior. So Lord, strengthen us now. Strengthen us individually, strengthen us corporately, and use these good words from your word to minister deeply to our hearts. Father, we love you. We thank you for this text, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.